Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather this way. We're glad that we live in a country where we can study your word and this, this confession without worrying about what the authorities think. Uh, and we ask you, Lord, that we would have insight and uh, come away from the discussion uh, enriched. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter 27. I know you've all been eagerly awaiting this chapter. It's on the sacraments. So I'd like to go ahead and dive into that. And it's, what page are we on in the hymnal? 864. So if you have a hymnal, you can see the chapter there, uh, chapter 27. I'm going to read uh, the first paragraph, and then we're going to spend a lot of time kind of framing things or putting things into a framework to think about it, about the, what's being addressed. And then we'll dive into the particulars. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them in, uh, to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Okay. Now, um, when we hear the word sacrament, for Protestants, two come to mind, which are what? Baptism, Baptism right, and the Lord's Supper. So, pretty important matters. Um, but when we hear the word sacrament, and our mind immediately, you know, it goes to those two things, um, we lose sight of a couple things. One is that the word sacrament actually has a history that actually predates those, those two uh, practices or to those two uh, sacraments, and that's worth thinking about. And that the word sacrament is not um, something that we see uh, in, in, you know, in Scripture because it's Latin. It's uh, actually a Latin rendering or a term that's used for a Greek word, which is mysterion. And that's important to remember too. Um, now, sometimes, you know, when we hear someone define uh, a sacrament, you'll hear the the term an outward sign of an inward grace. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. So the problem with that is that it doesn't get us any further in the controversies that tend to surround the subject, because what is uh, what is in what. Is, is kind of is lost in the so a lot of a lot of folks when they hear that they they think that they that it's referring to the inward grace in them. In other words, this is the inward grace I've experienced, as opposed to the thing that you you know is being sort of presented to you, which is bread and wine or you know the the waters of baptism. And I'd like to give you, get you thinking along this line a little bit. So when you hear the word mysterion, which is the term that's used in Scripture for these, um, what does that sound like? Mystery. Mystery, right. Now, this is not uh, helpful for a different reason, because today we don't use the word mystery the way it was used in uh, the first century. Uh, today, when you hear the word mystery, what comes to mind? Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, exactly right. Sherlock Holmes, something like that. And what it refers to is a puzzle that you can solve, right? What does, you know, Sherlock Holmes do? Or, what is it, Perot? Is that uh, Agatha Christie's character, you know, yeah. Inspector Perot? You know, what do they do? Well, there are these clues, right? And the mystery is the puzzle, and you have these clues, and then when you know, the mystery is solved, it goes away, right? So when you hear the word mystery, that's what we as modern people think, but that's not what people were, uh, what they meant when they used the word in the first century. The word in the first century meant something hidden from view. So in other words, there's the surface, and then there's the thing you can't see. 
to the surface and the thing you can't see. Uh, there's a connection, but uh, the connection isn't necessarily obvious, right? That's why, it, you know, it, the, the term was reappropriated in the modern period, because in the modern period, we don't believe in things you can't see. Get it? <laughs> so in the modern period, er, there, there are no mysteries in the old sense. In the old way of thinking, there are mysteries all around you. Honest, you know, you're a mystery. Spiritually, physically, you know, we, we have access to your spirit through your physical presence, right? So if you didn't have a body in this room, would we know you're here? No. <laughs> in other words, there's a, there's a, even the things that we normally associate with physical or with spiritual things like, like words. Uh, words are communicated through physical processes. I just spoke and sent a wave of sound through the atmosphere, and it struck your eardrum. There was a physical process. Now, there's something spiritual as well, right? When we say, you know, we, when we read God's word uh, aloud, we believe that God is speaking. But can we see God? Or is God working? Or is, is, is the physical process um, somehow precluding the reality of God, which is the modern way of thinking? Modern way of thinking is if you can understand something as, in terms of its physical characteristics, there's no mystery. There's nothing more going on, which is why um, they really do think that they'll be able to create sentience using you know, silicon and you know computers and artificial intelligence. Uh, the, pre the premise is that you and I are merely biochemistry. There's nothing more. And if you can hack the, the chemistry, you, you've solved the mystery. Right? So the mystery of consciousness, that's the way we think about it. It's just we need to hack it, we need to figure out the tools, and we can create sentience and robots and stuff like that. But the older view, and this is the Christian view as well, wasn't exclusively Christian. This is another thing. I mean, lots of people thought this way before the modern period. Lots of people thought there's stuff going on out there that's real, but not real in a physical sense. Can't not, you can't reduce it to physical things. There's, you know, we think about, let's think about, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the creeds. You know, God is the creator of things seen and unseen. Now, when, when we're referring to unseen things, we're not talking about things microscopic that we can't see with the naked eye. We're talking about things that are not material in character. So there's a spiritual reality to you and me. Um, and why should it surprise us that there can be a spiritual reality to the sacraments? You see, you see what I'm getting at? So the Zwinglian approach is very modern, and we'll get into that in a minute. It's a very modern way of thinking uh, where we just think of uh, a memorial meal or some kind of reference to something that happened in the past that's now we're reliving kind of in our heads but we're not actually communing with in any significant way. It's just happening in you and in me. There's no real connection. Is that, am I getting at some things that maybe you haven't had anybody talk to you about before? <laughs> I'm not surprised because we're all modern people. <laughs> we don't think like this. Yeah. It's kind of what you said in another thing that what is more real is what we can't see. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and that's we see that exactly in Paul. We see, you know, the things that we see are temporal; the unseen things are eternal. Directly from, you know, I think it's First Corinthians chapter four. Um, so the unseen things are are more real than the seen things. That doesn't mean that the uns, that the seen things are irrelevant or worthless or anything like that. It just, you know, I'm just, yeah, you know, it's just the quote. Well, Paul's point is to make sure you don't get caught up in just the things you can see because that's, right. not, that's not important, really, in the big picture. The yeah. unseen. And we're told, you know, has anyone seen God? That's a rhetorical question. And the answer is no. God is a spirit, right? So now, incarnate, you know, we have the incarnation, 
we have the glory. And that's another interesting The glory and the person are distinct. You know, so I want to see your glory. You can see the glory. Uh, you know, but the, the person remains uh, in thick uh, darkness, inaccessible, right? Invisible. That's one reason why uh, there's no image over the ark. You know, right there, you have this just empty space. So, anyway, stuff stuff that's important to keep in mind as we think about sacraments. Any other thoughts on on it? So, what did Moses? The glory. <clears throat> The problem is, is that if, you, if we could see, then he'd occupy space, right? He'd be in the creation in a way that would sort of lead the creation, you know. Now, you could say that there's some manifestation. There's a term, you know, theophany. There's some manifestation, but it's a manifestation. So this is, you know, there's been some debate here recently about, the, about classical theism. There was something that... Uh, Carl Truman published this past week, basically excoriating uh, evangelicals for their failure to, to read <laughs> and be aware of like classical uh, terms and, and understandings of the of the of the nature of God. And um, essentially, what what you get is if you if you um, the visible world is the creation. Okay, the creator creature distinction is really important. <laughs> and when we have uh, theophanies, you know, they're basically, you know, I think, you know, an example would be the burning bush. You know, there's, there's some sense in which God's person is being communicated to us, but we're not to confuse that with God and himself. Um, and when we think about the incarnation, um, we're talking about the second person of the Trinity, um, the Father never enters. The Father transcends. Um, and that's why, you know, the universe doesn't fall apart. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, I'm getting at? In other words, the, the, the Creator not only just, not only did it once upon a time in the past, you know, and now it's like, sort of, it's like, hanging in there on its own, you know, that's deism. And, but in a, an ongoing way, sustains creation. Uh, so that the, the creation depends upon the power of God moment by moment. It's not just something wound up and let go, but it's an ongoing support. And that's a really important uh, thing to affirm. Otherwise, we get into, well, all kinds of, Bad ways of thinking about creation. And that's, you know, we can become deists. Deism is the belief that God made it, but hasn't had anything to do with it since he made it. Just went on vacation, <laughs> got other important things to do, making other universes. I don't know. <laughs> but that's the idea. And that, that uh, is what led to a lot of, uh, well, it's sort of like a, gateway drug to atheism and materialism, sort of like a, a stage that ultimately brings you to that. And we can kind of chart it, you know, in terms of the history of Western thought. Anyway, uh, getting back to this, uh, that also means that if we really take that seriously, that God sustains the world in a moment-by-moment -moment way, that God is always beneath the surface of things, holding them up. And we shouldn't be surprised when something like, you know, this matter of the sacraments uh, informs us that there's something really going on there, and it's not just in our heads. It's not just in me. The sacrament isn't just referring to my personal experience. There's something in the sacrament itself. Anyway, thoughts? I know this is, these are deep waters. We don't, we don't wade into this part of the you know, the th of, the, of the truth very often, but it's a really important matter. I mean, we, we, have, we observe the Lord's Supper every week. We should be, have some sense that we know what's going on, <laughs> right? Yeah, Mark. 
give me a second here, but I think this idea of um, there's something we can see and there's something behind it that we can't. That the lectures of Professor James Tour of Rice University, he's the synthetic chemist who is looking at how, how can things move from dead inanimate chemistry to living. Yeah. And that the whole, what powerfully comes out, he's a messianic Jew. Okay. And he's the most, probably one of the most accomplished nanotechnology developers in the world. Wow. And he's a real joy to listen to his lectures yeah, because he, he basically points out, it, it. you sit and laugh your head off at how ridiculous yeah. it is to think that things moved from this to, from dead to living. Yeah. With what they know now, the impossibility of it is right. so beyond the imagination. Yeah. And he lays that out for you with just a few <coughs> things. I want to write down this guy's name. James. So. Yeah. Anyway, what he's really accomplishing there is what you're saying in yeah. the, in the in creation. He's looking at it, and, and all these people have a confidence that they're looking at something that's understandable. Right. It's not even close to understandable. We have no idea. Yeah of how living things right. are made. So what's his name again? James Tour. James, and how's the last name spelled? Just like going on a tour. Okay. And he's Christ. at Rice University, Christ. and you okay. can find him on YouTube. Well, that's an interesting place to, I'm gonna, I've got a, he's not a friend, he's an acquaintance, uh, who's kind of a notorious liberal theologian kind of guy, and he went to Rice. So I'm gonna take that and just rub it in his face. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's, that's really good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's been noted many times that if, if Darwin knew what was going on at a, at a microscopic level, he wouldn't have gone down the road he went down. Just because of, you know, like the term irredu irreducible complexity. Uh, have you seen some of the illustrations of what goes on in an individual cell, you know? Uh, these are illustrations, it's not as though they're just photographs, but they're illustrations showing all the me mechanisms that are, are present. And it's like you're looking at, you know, it's just unbelievable just how much is going on in this very s simple organism. Anyway, um, well, uh, going back here to this, so sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Now, this is an interesting, let's take a look at each of the terms here. So holy, uh, the word, of course, means uh, something set apart, something that is associated with God and, and is, uh, you know, used uh, by him. So it's something that God does. So God makes things holy. And then there are signs and seals. So a sign, of course, is something that points and then a seal is something that, that you know, encloses or, or is something that, no, but it also, a seal also has a kind of ref, referential element. So let's just think about these two. Like if when you, when you see a sign for like Las Vegas, you don't say, well, there's Las Vegas. It's referring to Las Vegas, right? But if there were no Las Vegas, would the sign make any sense? In other words, there is a connection between the sign and the thing that it's referring to. And it's, it's understandable, we, we get it. You say, okay, uh, yeah, it's not exactly the thing, but it wouldn't exist without the thing. There's, there's this connection. So, um, now I suppose if you were in a sign that was like right in Las Vegas, then you could say, you know, it's, you know you're there. <laughs> you know, say, Las Vegas. But this is, an, this is a relationship between signs and what they signify is a very significant matter because really this is the crisis of knowledge in our world today with po the postmodern moment. So people today don't believe there's any necessary connection. This is why words like male and female don't mean anything to lots of people. They're just simply arbitrary, social, conventions. And we can monkey around with them because there's no necessary connection between the thing that's being identified with the sign and the sign itself. 
Now, there are lots of us who don't agree and we refuse to go along, but that's the ideology that's at work, that there's no connection between these things. That's stupid. Yes, I agree, it's dumb, but lots of smart people do and think dumb things. <laughs> kind of history of the world. <laughs> so we shouldn't necessarily be too surprised, but, but that's important to keep in mind. So the sign is something that, you know, is indicative, it says this is something. Then the seal, you know, when we think about a seal, we don't think about seals very much, although they're kind of making a comeback. I don't know if you've noticed this. Like I've noticed lots of women are really into seals. Have you noticed this? It's kind of Etsy thing. You know, like you'll get the wax, you know, and then you'll make an impression on it. So any women here who kind of like follow that kind of stuff? Any, any willing to admit it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making fun of it. It's just kind of an interesting thing that this old way of sort of, sort of indicating that's something I've authorized. You know, basically the way it would work in the, in the old world is, you know, you get a, you know, a document. It would be sealed. No one's supposed to open it, right, unless they're authorized to do so. And the seal would indicate who it's from. You know, so you'd, and that's your signet ring. You know, this is the ring that would, you'd, impress upon them the, the soft wax to indicate, okay, this is the emperor. If I open this up and it's not for me, I'm dead. You know, <laughs> this is just for that person. Yep, David. We still do that all the time now. When you write your name across the seal of the envelope, when we put a little seal on the boxes that go across overseas, okay. seals, we still do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised it's still practice. Yep, yeah. This is an advertisement, so excuse me, but there's a shop in Cannon Beach where he has, he's a diver, and he's, I want to say dove in, but I know that's not a word, <laughs> on shipwrecks okay. from Rome to Washington and in between, and he, speaking of seals, he finds these seals, yeah. he, because every shape on the seal means something. Right. He has turned them into gold jewelry. He oh, has turned Roman coins into. I I, I yeah. recommend that everybody here goes there, and there is a story card on every single piece in his shop. You can watch videos of how he's found these things, but it's intensely personal, and it's a lost art. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a really beautiful. They're really beautiful stories. I bet uh, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So just so you know, these two terms, sign and seal, come to us from Romans 4. Um, and there we are, have a reference to circumcision. This is interesting. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet, uh, which he had yet being uncircumcised. So this is something that Paul is trying to note, that the, that the faith that Abraham possessed preceded the... Uh, seal of circumcision. So, anyway, but so the language is drawn from Scripture. That's the thing I just wanted to note. It wasn't some clever, you know, sort of association made by the Westminster divines. Now, uh, so it's immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. Now, folks are probably familiar with the, the, the fact that the Roman Catholic Church uh, has a longer list than we do. Um, so let me just dig that up so that um, I can enumerate the seven sacraments that uh, the Roman Catholic Church um, has, which is baptism, penance, confirmation, holy orders, Eucharist, matrimony, and extreme unction. Um, so uh, there's seven and there's uh, two. two. The two that we observe are those that are explicitly instituted through in Scripture. Um, I have a feeling that seven was identified as like a great number to have, and so we got to find some things. That, you know, I'm having a little fun. <laughs> yeah. Can you say those over again? What, what I, oh, okay. Uh, you know, baptism, which is, of course, one that we share, but penance, uh, confirmation, holy orders, which would mean, you know, the vocation of a priest, 
Uh, the Eucharist, matrimony, this is one that I think catches some people by surprise, but marriage is considered a sacrament within Catholicism, and then the anointing of the sick so, or extreme unction. Anyway, just, I'm just m noting that you know, there uh, is this point of disagreement, but um, when it comes to the institution, this is one of the reasons why uh, Protestants uh, you know, limit the number to two because we have only two that are explicitly instituted uh, for us. Yeah. Probably important to note that third take on baptism and <coughs> communion or Lord's Supper is not the same as. I, yeah. grew, I grew up Catholic and sure. they, uh, they didn't, you know, if you dropped the host, yeah. you know, it was considered by the, you know, right. Christ's body. Right. And they used to, back in the old days, they used to put a, a little thing under your neck. Right. So when they gave you the communion, if it fell, it would, it would fall on this plate. Right. And then they, right. then they would keep it someplace special in the church. Oh, sure. Away from, you know. Yeah, I was involved in the construction of a Catholic church, and it was a fascinating thing to be involved with because there's actually a, a very uh, sort of explicit way you're supposed to dispose of the host that's unused, you're supposed to return directly to the soil. Uh, but anyways, these, these are different things. But there are other... Um, paragraphs that get to that. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get to those. Okay. Um, Chris. Yeah. Just, we're talking about two sacraments. <coughs> right. But there's really the Old Testament sacraments as well. I just wonder if we should... Yeah. And, and, I mean, it's in the last right, point. Right. But it's also in Of God's Covenants, chapter right. 7. Right. But just so people are thinking that way, too, because it is critical. Yeah, so there's a connection between what we see done in the Old Testament, particularly with regard to circumcision, but uh, that is reflected or sort of carried forward into the new. So there's a, there's a connection between the two. So it's not as though when we think about uh, the Old Testament, this, is, this is, tends to be a tendency that people have when they think about, say, law and grace. They'll say, back then that was all legalism, that kind of thing, and there was, there was no grace in it. Now, we're, now God is nice and we enjoy God's grace and mercy. That's kind of the way a lot of folks sort of, folk theology sort of conceives it. But when we think about the Old Testament, uh, what we see is something pointing forward that's fulfilled in Christ. And then what we have with the Christian understanding is that now we're looking back to what Christ has done for us. So when we think about the Old Testament church, this is perhaps a new way for you to consider this, uh, it is uh, the faithful that lived before Christ. But they lived in hope, and, they, and they, they really didn't have a full understanding of all that would be achieved uh, and how it ought all come about. But there was this hope that, say, that was you know, present, that was... Um, the same hope we have and the same Savior that we have. So they didn't save themselves once upon a time. Uh, they were saved by Christ. But the thing, it's kind, of, kind of the way you can think about it is this. Um, the benefits of the, of the atonement move in, in all directions. You know, like when you think about it this way, this is just an illustration, so don't take this too literally. But if, if you think about uh, when you drop a, you know, an object into a pool of water, there are ripples that go in all directions, right? And if we think about history in that way, you know, what's accomplished at the cross has benefits everyone who was a believer before it occurred. Now, why does it work that way? Well, one, one way to sort of think about this is the relationship that God has to time and distinguishes and, and how we uh, are different than, than in terms of how we relate to time. And I know I've gotten into this before, but this gets us to classical theism again. So is there a before and an after for God in a, in a chronological sense? Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's no, because God stands outside of time. So uh, that means that what occurs in history is ordained in eternity. It's established eternally. It's the decrees of God are not, and this is why I think a lot of times people when they think about predestination um, suffer with some 
some, some ways of thinking, or from some ways of thinking that are just not um, accurate. So uh, with regard to understanding predestination, one of the things I think is important to note is it's not as though God stands at, the, at a certain point and just looks down the corridor of history. Wow, isn't it great that I can see so far away? I'm God. That's not really the way it works. So uh, for, for God, if God stands outside of history, that means everything is immediately present to God, no matter when it occurs for us. See how that works? So immediately all of the sort of the objections to predestination just evaporate, if you think about it that way. Because what, what are the objections? You know, they're, they're kind of mechanistic objections. They're objections about sort of God determining things before they happen. And for God, you might as well say everything's in the past. Everything's like already happened. That's why, as Christians, we have, with regard to our faith, because God has said it, it's done. So... What does that mean? It's, it's not like God is saying, oh, I'm hoping that I can pull this off. You know, <laughs> whew, that was close. <laughs> it doesn't work that way at all. So for God, you know, uh, the elect are the elect, right? Uh, the new creation is the new creation. Uh, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's all that way. I know that it's hard for us to think that way because we're, you know, situated in a world where things are set up the way they are, time and space. It reminds me, I had this marvelous conversation with a physicist, it's a Christian who was a ruling elder at a church that I was at, teaches at UConn, and he said, it's great that we have time and space. I said, really, why? He said, well, the reason why uh, it's important that we have time is so that everything doesn't happen all at once. And it's great that we have space because uh, that means that it all doesn't happen to you. <laughs> it has a way of sort of keeping things separated. <laughs> but from God's perspective, you know, uh, we're talking about stand, you know, God standing outside of things and looking at things all at once. Is that a source of comfort or just a mind-boggling thing? That explains everything. Yeah, it's a great source of comfort for me. You know, like God is not like... I wonder how this is going to pull it off. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's it's as good as done. It is finished means it is finished, right? So again, with regard to our salvation, we should take comfort in that. Nothing can snatch us out of His hand, right? Um, anyway, returning to this, uh, to represent Christ and His benefits. So instituted by God to represent Christ in his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. So this represent Christ in his benefits. Uh, you can take the word represent and think about it as represent. You know, this is a way to consider to, to represent Christ to us and his benefits. So when we, when we think about this language, you know, there's a, there's a very clear separation between the sign and what is signified, but there's still a, a, something that's tying them together, and to confirm our interest in him. So our interest is in him. Uh, that's an interesting thing to consider. I, I think because uh, in our time, we are so, uh, I think, taken with the notion of, an in, of individualism that we have lost our sense of our of our common interests. Have you, have you thought about this at all? So for example, uh, one of the things that I reflect on quite a bit um, when I'm reading this part of the scriptures is the uh, Rehoboam uh, episode. You know, now if you remember Rehoboam, Jeroboam, all them boom boys. <laughs> but anyway, you got this this episode where you know Solomon has died and, and Rehoboam is now king. And there's this group of advisors, these counselors, the old guys, and they tell Rehoboam what? Do you remember what they tell him? Cut the taxes. Cut taxes. You'll win their hearts. 
you know, your father's been pretty tough on them. Cut the taxes, you'll win their hearts. And then what is Rehoboam doing? He goes and hangs out with his frat buddies, you know, guys that he went to school with, you know, completely brainless bunch, you know. And what's their advice? Raise the taxes. That's right, double it. Because you gotta make sure they know who's boss, right? You know, you don't wanna look weak. That would be really bad. So he raises taxes, what happens? Revolt, tax revolt, right? So Jeroboam comes along. And then Jeroboam, when they had this confrontation, he says, if you recall, uh, every man to his own house, we have no portion in David. No portion in David is the marvelous phrase. What does that mean, no portion in David? It means that our interests are not bound up with the interests of the house of David. The house of David is what we're referring to. So Rehoboam is David's grandson, right? He's the heir. So the house of David has a set of interests. In other words, it's economic, it's sort of interests, it's political interests and so forth. And what is being uh, objected to is the fact that we're not getting anything out of this. <laughs> you know, we're paying in a whole lot more than we're getting out. And um, every man to his own house. Let's break this thing up. Now, our interest in Christ is the thing to consider here. What is our interest in Christ? It's enormous, right? All the promises are yes in Christ, which means that everything he's got coming to him, we get some. That's what it means to be joint heir. Whatever he deserves, we get some. That's our interest. We have an interest in Christ. So uh, this is to confirm our interest in him, to make a statement that my interests are in him. You know, what he has coming to him, I'm going to be able to enjoy. I've got a place there. I've got a part in that. Um, it's to confirm that to yourself, to remind you of that, right? But also to make a declaration to others. That's where my interests lie, you know? Now, when it comes to temptations, um, I think one of the reasons why temptations are powerful is because we wonder sometimes whether or not we have any interest in Christ. In other words, whether or not what's going to him means anything to us, right? So when you doubt that, you think, well, maybe there's another deal out there. Maybe I can get something for me uh, that's not in Christ. And that's why you entertain um, you know, other gods, uh, other plans, other political programs. You say, I, need to, I'm, I don't have any common interest with Christ. I need to find my, my happiness someplace else. So that's the, you know, doubt can be like a, a worm that eats away at our, at our devotion because we, we don't see any, any reason to, to sort of see all the promises are ours and him. Yeah. Is that like when bills are coming due and you come back from a hard day's work and you buy a lottery ticket on the way home? Well, yeah, that's, there, there's a temptation. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me just sort of play this out. So with regard to that, uh, the, the lottery ticket would be, you know, kind of a gamble, right? Just in case God doesn't come through this time. Well, yep, there's that. There's that. It, 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 here's a fun thing. It's like when you think about, um, so our ongoing reliance on God, I think is the thing you're getting at here, which is a, a good thing to think about. Um, like when you think about manna, the manna episode, there's another great story. Do you remember that if they tried to save the manna for the next day, what happened? It would go bad. It was it would be buggy, and except one day, then there were some preservatives. <laughs> so if you collected it, you know, uh, you know, on the day before the Sabbath, it was good for two days. But you know, what was the temptation? Well, I'm not sure about this guy. Better save some manna for you know, you know, possible non-manna day. Wait, think about it with your kids. You know, if your kids were like, you know. You're giving them pancakes and they were sitting at the table stuffing pancakes in their pockets. You just don't know about mom. She might not come through tomorrow. <laughs> you know, we gotta, we gotta make sure we've had your bets here. <laughs> gotta 
diversify, <laughs> right? But the, I think, yeah. Isn't that also that part in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread? Oh, yeah. Just yeah. enough for today, not tomorrow. Yeah. Just today. So, you know, there are, there are you know, our daily needs and our, our, our interest in him on a daily basis. That's definitely part of it. I was thinking in the bigger sense, judging the angels, seated, you know, in heavenly places. They're both true. They're both part of the package. <laughs> but I, I, I also think that one of the reasons why um, we take matters into our own hands when it comes to uh, sins that have been committed against us is we don't really believe that God's going to set everything right. We're like, don't know. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean you, go, you don't go to the police. I'm not saying that doesn't mean that you don't, uh, you know, sue somebody who's cheated you out of, out of things. I'm, what I'm getting at is, is this sort of, I got to take matters into my own hands because I don't believe God's going to set things right kind of thing. Yep. So we're talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. What about, what do you think, what role remembrance plays in remembering that that God is the same God today? Oh, yeah. He's never changed. He never will change. He gave them what they deserved. He is a God of justice. So what role does remembrance play oh, huge. in us remembering, yes, he will? Yeah, well... All of the things that we think about in terms of, um, well, when you think about the sacraments, you know, do this in remembrance of me, right? Uh, we're reminded each time we gather at the table what has been done for us. And we also remember what's been promised to us. So there's, there's all of that. Even when you think about like Passover, it was sort of like um, live action role play, you know, LARPing. That's basically what the, the, you know, the Passover observance was, where everybody's sitting at the table, ready to, ready to hit the road. You know, they're not going to actually hit the road. They're going to have dessert. But, <laughs> you know, they're, they're kind of sitting there. And then you know, the question, the oldest son is appointed to ask the question, why are we doing this? And then it's the father's job to tell the story. Well, you know, the reason why we do this, and it's, you're kind of reliving it. You know, even with like, you know, the, all of the, you know, habits regarding, you know, making sure you go through the house and get all the leaven out. You know, that was another part of the larger story, you know, we're getting ready to roll, can't wait around, that kind of thing. So, you know, that thinking about Old Testament observances of sacraments, uh, that's when we think about those things, those things, you know, both look back and look forward uh, because there was a greater deliverance that was being foreshadowed by you know, the deliverance from Egypt. Um, so the, these um, uh, sacraments um, also put a visible difference between the church and the world. So this idea of a visible difference, I think, is worth reflecting on a little bit. Um, certainly is important to have the inward reality of your relationship to God in Christ, not at all diminishing the significance of that. But that doesn't mean that outward signs are, are unimportant or worthless, right? So uh, these signs are intended to show the world and the church and even the people in the church and outside the church uh, the distinction between those who believe and those who don't, who belong to the church and who don't belong to the church. Any thoughts about that? How, how do you get someone to go to church? Well, one way is to say, hey, come to church with me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. David. Uh, your comment earlier about how the, the guy you quoted the professor talked about how he was praying evangelicals for not reading. Uh, yeah, it was Carl Truman. And reference what he says right now on the signs and seals. Is that why most evangelical churches are so flippant on communion? Yeah, I, I think that there are a number of things that sort of contemporary evangelicals 
have taken to extremes that, you know, the reformers would be appalled at, at seeing. Even Zwingli. <laughs> you know, so there's a kind of flippancy when it comes to the sacraments. Um, oh, they're just outward forms, there's nothing to them. It's a very modern way of thinking. So I was uh, alluding to this last week about this visible difference. And I don't know, it'd be interesting to see the history of baptism and the Lord's Supper as it started to gain prominence, I guess, in the early church, because you have the Acts, we have the General Assembly, and we're, there's this confusion all of a sudden, because as was mentioned earlier, there was the sacraments in the Old Testament, now they're like, okay, well, what about that? But at the same time, I think that we see very strong, uh, you know, Paul uses the word circumcision and baptism almost interchangeably in some of his epistles. Um, And looking back to Abraham is his common way to do it. Um, And then so it gets to this visible difference and we're baptizing our children like they did in the Old Testament with circumcision. That's why we're making a visible representation. Um, And this will get back more talk about it in the terms of the baptism doctrine, but the membership, the idea of church membership, as this relates to the sacraments, and I kind of asked the question, and this has been asked before a long time ago, in terms of, you know, what makes it possible to be a member, I guess, of the Church of Christ? And, you know, is it doctrinal, or is it confessional, or is it just, I have a belief in Jesus, that kind of thing? Well, we, 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 let's take the, the last, the second, or the, the second and the third. So, confessional, and I have a belief, that is confession. I have a belief in Jesus. Now, you can unpack it and say, well, what do you mean by that? So, like, I believe in Jesus. Well, good. Do you believe he just was a man who lived 2,000 years ago? Or, or is there more to that? And the question is, is where'd you get that idea? So there's a sense in which the confession of the church informs even that in ways that people fail to appreciate because it's just sort of like in the atmosphere, it's in the air. But um, I think that, <clears throat> like I, I remember I had a, 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 an elder's wife at my last church and uh, she came from a, you know, a fairly uh, well-educated sort of, uh, sort of family and uh, her, her father, uh, really kind of new agey kind of person. And, uh, you know, he's, he would say, I believe in Jesus too. I even believe he's the son of God. And then she would like dig into it and say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, we're all sons and daughters of God. You know, that's, that's what he meant. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of have to dig into it a little bit. So when the elders meet with somebody, we're, we're, that's one of the things we're exploring. What is your understanding? I mean, is that the confession of the church? that you're saying, I'm confessing as well? Or are you kind of operating sort of without a net? <laughs> you're just sort of like, well, it feels right to me, you know, that kind of thing. Now, what you can uh, get is somebody who maybe hasn't thought about it very much or doesn't fully understand it, but maybe what you d- discover in the conversation is, oh, yeah, well, they really kind of do get it. They just didn't know how to put it. They couldn't put it into the, into the, the language that this, the church has, has uh, you know, come together to, to approve that kind of thing. Does that make sense? So what I'm driving at, I guess, without reasoning up a big can of worms, is how detailed does that confession? When yeah. We're reading the Westminster Confession. Right. Is that the confession? Okay, here, memorize this, come back to me, and we'll, we'll decide whether you'll be a member or not. Yeah, well, yeah we, we, don't, we don't say that, and at least in our local body. <laughs> Maybe there are people out there who do. I don't know, but uh, like well, let's let's take let's take the classic example of the thief on the cross. He knew more than I think we suspect he knew. Right? He grew up in Israel. We're assuming anyway he's an Israelite, and he'd been hearing about the Messiah probably for a long time. It was not like something that was like 
a small group of people in back rooms talked about. It was just like a thing that everybody was aware of and knew about. Um, and when he's making his confession, I'm pretty confident that he knew a lot more than maybe we assume. So that he's the Son of God, and the Son of God, uh, as a king, would have the right to, to, to forgive sins, you know, that, that, all of that. He's got a future. So even like the resurrection is something that, obviously, remember, the Pharisees believed in. So it's not something, you know, this, this idea that even though he's on the cross, it's the end of the story. There's something more to it. So anyway, uh, I think those are safe suppositions. Yep. I always imagined him because of his statement, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yeah. That, that to me, I always, when I heard that statement or read it when I was, ever since I was young, I always assumed that that thief on the cross had been a prodigal son. Prodigal son in what sense? A prodigal son of an Israelite who was looking for the promise. He just, he, he grew up in it, he knew it. Yeah, at the same time, what does it imply? It implies that, so think about it. There's a dude next to you on a cross dying. But he was innocent. Well, true, but I'm, the point is that he's dying. <laughs> and you're, you're saying, remember me when you come in. You know, most people would say, this guy has no future. <laughs> Most people would say, it's over for this guy. <laughs> he's going to be on that cross until he's gone. He's expired. Now, now you know, maybe there were people who believed that you know, he'd be taken off the cross and he wouldn't die. You know, I'm not getting into that. But I'm just thinking, this is a lot of faith that this guy is demonstrating here. He's not just making a wish. You know? He's not just sort of saying something off the top of his head. There's, there's some content to it. And it's not just, you know... Uh, in his heart. <laughs> He's believing that something's going to happen uh, outside his heart to some other person. He's going to have a kingdom. He's going to enter into, he's going to enter a kingdom. So in our world today, we're so, this, this, everything is so subjective and everything is kind of reduced to that level. You know the old Gaither song, you ask me how I know he lives. Remember the it lives with my heart. Well, great. I mean, yeah, I'm glad for you. But um, there was also an historic event. <laughs> he rose from the dead. <laughs> and we know about that because some apostles uh, testified that he saw him. So we got some history going for it. You know, it's, in other words, it's not just how I feel. I think, uh, don't get me wrong, I think your feelings are important. But they're not the, they're not the witness that that we're talking about here. But I, I think getting, getting to Victor's observation, how much do you need to know, I, I, it's maybe, maybe it's not uh, an ability to uh, satisfy the ordination requirements of the Presbyterian Church in America. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, also not nothing. You know. So carry this on to the other yeah. chapters, especially in baptism. But um, at the very least, if there's a visible recognition, when we baptize babies, we're separating them. Right. Just like the additional circumcision. Right. And when we take the supper, the Lord's Supper, commonly called the Lord's Supper, other names, Eucharist and communion, our convention calls it the Lord's Supper. We're making a distinction there as well. Yeah. And and so when we participate every Lord's Day, this is why I'm very happy that we do this every yeah. Sunday. We're we're uh, we're being denoted as members. Yeah. Communing communing with Christ right. along with one another. Yeah. We're, we're making this presentation. Another thing is this fellow talked to me on Tuesday night. He goes, one of his grievances with the Reformed Church is that we're not preaching the gospel enough from the pulpit. I'm not saying he's saying that about you necessarily, but what I told him is that every Lord's Day, yeah. if you participate in the supper, the proclamation of the gospel is, is enacted, as it were, right. by that, that last kind of exclamation point of our worship service. And so there again is this 
radical demarcation that God is saying, I bought you with the price of my blood. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important part of the service for that very reason. I think, you know, some scriptures don't lend themselves as readily to a gospel present, you know, presentation as others. You know, sometimes you'll have guys who kind of shoehorn things in such a way that you're like, you know, a little bit kind of uh, kind of logically feeling like you've been forced into a, into a place where it doesn't naturally lead. Um, and what I what I think um, can be the converse problem is when. Uh, in the name of preaching the gospel every single time, we never talk about the law. Or other things. Yeah. I mentioned him, that Paul mentioned, I did not seek to declare to you the whole counsel. Yeah. yeah, there's wisdom, there's law, there's gospel. And I, they all connect, of course, but I think one of the great things about uh, observing the Lord's Supper every week is that if I've not adequately, you know, sort of stressed the gospel, there it is. And confirming, yeah, what you preached, right? Often that happens. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Just one thought. Just, just in connection to the Passover, when the older son says, "Why do we do this?" Yeah. Like with the Lord's Supper, I think separating us from the world—that's actually the thing that makes people on the outside say, "Why did they do that?" Yeah. You're preaching; they won't say that. They may just argue with your words. Yeah. But when we go through this ceremony, people are like. I don't get it. What's the why? What's and they'll start asking questions, and then, right. and then the gospel is really preached because they're actually yeah. their mind and their heart is persuaded to go and ask and find the truth. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I also think that it covers uh, a lot of ground. Um, one of the things about any sermon, you know, is is there's a lot you, you don't have time to say <laughs> that people need to hear, and the sacrament is the is the is the thing that presents them with, you know, the grace of God in a way that addresses things that, you know, couldn't be addressed. Um, there's also a sense in which, you know, like, when I, when I preach, uh, this, I, I try to, and it's not even a conscious thing anymore, but it's just a kind of an unconscious thing, I try to have something on every shelf. So, like, the low shelf is for the kids, you know, then you kind of go up and if there happens to be somebody with an advanced PhD in, you know, historical theology or whatever, you know, a PhD in historical, there's something there. <laughs> so everybody's getting something. But, you know, you can't do that every single time. Um, but with the sacrament, no matter where you are, intellectually, spiritually, whatever, there's something that's there for you. I think that's a really great thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep, Mark. So we're not only preaching it to others, but to ourselves. I think of the, under the Old Covenant, yeah. they did not take the Passover, they will say at certain points, that they hadn't done it for mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah, yeah. It had been a long time yeah. since they had been reminded right. that they were not a great people. Right. They were slaves in Egypt. Right. They were delivered. They were right. delivered from the death angel, and they were brought into this land. Right. And now have this communion with him and you know every time we stand up every time you stand up there and yeah. the elders are up there we're reminded everybody here is reminded yeah. yeah jesus christ had to die right because of my sin right right yeah. and, and it's we just never forget that you can see how if you just took it away and i've been in churches where it was hardly ever taken I remember, and yeah. i was like what is this yeah you know, and you can you can you can start to forget right. and think you're a you're a special person because right. you know you got a lot going for you and look at all these great people around here. <laughs> right, right. All right, that's good stuff. Anything else as we wrap up? Um. Anyway, um, I think we'll next week take up the conversation with that last line and then get into the second paragraph. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this opportunity to reflect on this important matter. We pray, Lord, that uh, in our understanding we'll continue to grow, uh, knowing that um, 
through the sacrament you are ministering to us that there is grace that we enjoy in the observance. We know that there are many ways to misunderstand things, but it's also possible to have a, a good understanding. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to acquire that. In Christ's name, amen.